0: Good morning. Happy Monday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand and it is perfect. Okay. Kind of a wacky Monday. Schedule's way off. I'm recording this later than I normally do. Um, I got to go in and work with the 6am and 7am crew at IFAST. So that was cool to see some people that I haven't seen in a while, but it does put a uh, I'm a monkey in the wrench, so to speak, in regards to the schedule, but we're, we're very, very cool, and I'm excited about today's Q&A question, so let's dig in. It comes from Alex, and Alex says, regarding a heel-raising strategy during squatting, in this case, not using a heel lift, but seeing uh, someone's heels lift when they descend into a squat or a jump. I've seen this commonly in children and adolescents, and more recently in some adults. Is this an example of individuals who cannot delay the max propulsive moment, and need to better control the early to mid stance phase. Alex, you are on point on this one. Um, yes, every time we see these these heels elevate, like when you're watching a squat, or even when you're watching someone walk, you'll see the, the, the early heel lift. What you have is somebody that, that cannot create this yielding strategy posterior that is the requirement of lowering a center of gravity or delaying uh, the propulsive phase so we can get the tibia over the foot as we're walking, now here's what I'd also offer you, Alex: is, is that under most circumstances, squatting requires a, tr- a, a much more significant yielding strategy than than gait does. Um, so it, they are probably achieving some form of max propulsion during gait, but they're going to acquire it somewhere else. It's not going to be in the foot, as you have, have so so well identified. Um, chances are they're going to do it somewhere else. So. When we talk about max propulsion, we need, we need relative motions to, to capture the position for uh, max propulsion. So some people are gonna try to try to do that in different places if they can't move through their typical external rotation to internal rotation to external rotation strategies. And so some people will try to do it through their big toe. And so we call that a hallux valgus. Some people will try to do it through their knee. And so we call that a knee valgus. Um, some people will try to, to reorient the pelvis so when i see somebody with an anti-orientation of the pelvis what that is is the pelvis moving up over the over the the femur so I, I orient the acetabulum such that it's a substitution for for the lack of internal rotation that i need to achieve this max propulsive strategy so like i said so they are achieving it it's somewhere um now Let's suppose I do have these compressive strategies posteriorly where they're going to shove my center of gravity forward. So in in many cases, I'm going to need a a strategy in the ankle and the foot that keeps me from tipping over forward. And so this is where you're going to see some some concentric overcoming um, activity. Um, in, the, in the musculature, especially down in the, in the foot and the ankle, that are going to prevent me from coming forward. So a lot of times this is what you're also going to see. So this is why the heels come up when they walk. This is why the heels uh, come up uh, when they squat. But this is also one of the reasons why um, the heels elevated stuff in the gym kind, kind of works. So uh, if I give you a representation of the foot, so if you have an early foot... We're going to have a a, a tibia that's going to be in in relative external rotation. I'm going to have an arch that's up rather high, and I'm going to have a a toe on the ground, so I get this really, really high arch. Well, if that arch stays up because this is a center of gravity issue, I can't translate the tibia over the foot because to do that, the arch has to go down. And so I have this arch that comes up. So my alternative strategy then is if I just elevate... If I elevate the heel so, so this would be where the foot would, would rest if I drop the toes down and keep the heel elevated I've essentially dropped the arch out of the way and so now I can actually translate my tibia forward so now I can capture the yielding strategy at the beginning of the movement so if I was doing the heels elevated squat or some form of split squat with heels elevated what I've done is I've allowed myself to reduce the overcoming element of this concentric Uh, strategy posteriorly I've created a yielding strategy which is the expansion which is the the delay that I needed to acquire to allow this tibia to translate over and so again that's why we start with heels elevated under these these circumstances so the people are telling you exactly what they need I don't need to throw people on the table and measure I just need to understand the representation that I'm seeing so from here once I have this yielding strategy captured um, Whether I have to adapt it with with the heels elevated, then I got to start thinking training strategies. So again, I have to I have to promote the reduction of the anterior orientations that are throwing the center of gravity forward. I have to overcome the the compressive strategies that are limiting my anterior posterior expansion. Because if I don't have posterior expansion, I don't have a yielding strategy to help me delay this max propulsion. Um, like I need to so again you go from heels elevated to a front foot elevated and then teach them to translate the tibia over the foot with a reduced load so now I can start to capture these relative motions from the, the ground up and then I eventually progress to increasing the load over over the 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 front foot if you will um, to allow them to to learn how to maintain their ability to capture these relative motions under um, heavier loads, higher forces, etc so Alex, great question really common um, I think this this is um, a, a, a great way to start the week. Um, hopefully this doesn't turn into like the the foot and the squat week like like we we had before We'll get some variety in here, but this is a great way to start because I, I think it's a really common Uh, question that a lot of people have. So thanks, Alex. Have a great day. Um, Let's start off a great week and I'll see you tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Tuesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. All right. Man, I'm feeling a little feeling a little stressed this week because we're going to go on vacation in a few days, and so you always have to get like everything done before you go. And so I'm cramming a bunch of stuff into this week, um, and I got a big question today, so I'm going to dive right in into this. Um, and it comes from it's either Stephen or Stefan. It's got the pH in there, and I never know what to do there. I grew up with a kid, and we call him Stephen, and he had a pH, so I'm going to call you Stephen if that's okay. If I screwed that up, just let me know. Um, but it is a great question. So, Stephen asks, What are some non surgical strategies for addressing ulnar nerve hypermobility? Uh, does this often coincide with very depressed shoulders? And how might these be related? Is it a lack of shoulder internal and external rotation? Um, that's a factor that drives this. How does supination and pronation and biceps and triceps come into play? I know there's a lot of sub questions in there, but I would just love hearing your perspective. So, first and foremost, appreciate that. But this is a great question because i think it's it's horribly horribly misnamed um i think that that we, we always have to remember that one thing that the people are horrible at naming things and then by calling this thing ulnar nerve hypermobility we get distracted by what's really going on so now we're blaming the ulnar nerve for something that it can't even do um, so it, it, we don't blame a train for following a track and and in this case the ulnar nerve is the train and it's just following a track. And so if we change the track, then the behavior of the train changes. And so that's what we're looking at in my my estimation of the situation. So so Stephen, we've got an orientation problem and we've got a shape change problem. So so the first thing that that we wanna understand is that we do have a very specific shape to the, the, the cubital tunnel. Um, that that typically exists. So we have the the medial epicondyle um, along with the the rest of the elbow structure making this nice squared off uh, cubital tunnel that allows the ulnar nerve to move move through its normal groove. But if we have something that would change the shape of that tunnel, and I think that we do, then um, we're going to have the ability of this ulnar nerve to move a little bit differently. So rather than having... Um, this nice squared off shape, what we end up having is it becomes um, more of like a, like a half moon kind of a shape um, or, or a little bit more curved, which allows the ulnar nerve to slide up and out of the cubital tunnel as we flex the elbow. So, so these symptoms typically show up around 90 degrees of, of elbow flexion, um, which is where we put a lot of tension on the, on the ulnar nerve. So the ulnar nerve has to bend around the elbow at this, at this 90 degree point. And if it doesn't have this, this squared off, rigid um, uh, tunnel to, to hold it in place, it's just gonna slide up and out. And that's basically basically what happens. So if we look at this thing from the orientation perspective, first and foremost, we're gonna have a proximal to distal influence, and then we're gonna have a distal to, to proximal. So, so so proximal to distal, we're gonna have a loss of shoulder internal rotation under most cases. And so we're gonna get an orientation of the humerus into external rotation um now because of this the forearm the proximal forearm is actually going to follow the distal humerus into external rotation and so so this is this is actually a really really big deal what we end up with then is we get a posterior lateral compression so we get concentric orientation of anconius we get a concentric orientation of supinear which twists the proximal forearm into supination now we also have to Remember that I have a pronator on them that attaches directly to this medial epicondyle. So pronator teres attaches to the radius. So if the radius is trying to move into supination, it's going to pull the distal attachment of, of pronator teres along with it. And guess what? It's going to also pull the medial epicondyle. And so now I've got, I've got multiple forces that are twisting this distal humerus into external rotation. This is what's going to flatten out the cubital tunnel. It's going to change the shape of the cubital tunnel. It's going to allow the ulnar nerve to slide out. Um, It's going to cause a whole bunch of medial stress on, on that, on that elbow. Now, distal to proximal because I have to pronate my hand in, in any number of cases. If I'm keyboarding, I have to pronate my hand. But a lot of times we relate this to baseball. This is a really good representation for baseball because when I, when I throw, when I release the ball, I actually have to pronate my, my hand and, and my distal forearm. So I get a lot of pronation that's that's coming from distal to proximal. So, so Approximately, I'm trying to er supinate distally. I'm trying to pronate, so I get this perfect storm of, of twist, which keeps tension on that pronator teres, which pulls the medial condyle, and again we get that shape change at, at the medial elbow. And so what this ends up looking like is, so people will get accused of having a, an increase in the valgus elbow. It's not a valgus; it's a twist. Go back to the valgus elbow. Um, video from a while back and and, and you'll get that explanation. They'll get accused of having hyperextension of the elbow. It's not hyperextension, again, it's the twist at the elbow that's associated with the concentric orientation in that posterior lateral aspect. So now we actually have a representation of what we're looking at. Let's come up with a solution. So number one, eliminate interference. So we have behaviors that are actually promoting some of these changes. Let me pick on the on the young baseball baseball players um, for a moment. You got to stop throwing a little bit because every time you're throwing, you're actually increasing that, that distal humeral external rotation. You're promoting the shape change in the elbow, and you're allowing this ulnar nerve to slide in and out of this groove, and that's what creates the irritation on the inside of your elbow. Um, we need to minimize the elbow flexion activity. So the people that are that are diagnosed with this. This situation often have a lot of medial elbow pain, but they find that if they keep the elbow straight, it doesn't bother them quite so much. In fact, they'll splint people at night in elbow extension um, just to take the stress off of, of this medial elbow. Um, so again, we have to eliminate the things that are actually aggravating. Now, um, if we talk about a reconstruction a reorientation and, a, and hopefully a, a shape change that is favorable We have to do activities that bring the pump handle up so so the sternum we have to get anterior expansion through through the the upper anterior thorax this is going to give us back our shoulder internal rotation that we need to start to reorient the humerus if we can't reorient from proximal to distal um, we're we're not going to recapture this this elbow position Um, from there um, so we're going to do uh, like reaching activities stuff at 90 degrees of shoulder flexion with the elbow extended again it's going to be more comfortable that way Um, to start. We can move to oblique sit variations with elbow extended and start to work on some of this internal rotation, recapturing normal pronation of of the forearm to reduce the proximal supination element. We can start to do that. We're going to move down to side um, plank variations, I'm starting first elbow extended and then again going down to elbow flexed with normal pronation. What I may also have to do is I may have to reduce the pronation influence that's coming distal to proximal. So I'm going to pad up my hand if I'm doing this in elbow flexion so I've got a shoulder and internal rotation. I've got normal pronation of the forearm, but I'm going to block the hand so I don't get that that distal to, to proximal influence. From there, we can move on to more dynamic activities, but we always have to respect the the orientation of the shoulder, the position of the elbow, and then what the hand is driving from from distal to proximal so if we're going to do any form of elbow extension activities we'll do an in internal rotation pronation um, with with a a limited amount of of uh, hand right, wrist deviation so we want to keep this orientation of the hand to the wrist um, relatively fixed so we're not driving again the distal to proximal element of, of pronation Stephen, I hope that gives you at least a place to start, a little bit more understanding of what I think is going on with, with, this, with this situation. And again, let's not blame the owner nerve for this. Let's look at the orientations, look at the shape change, because the owner nerve is just following along where everybody's given it a new path. So, everybody, have a great Tuesday. Um, I will see you guys tomorrow. Good morning. Happy Wednesday. I have NeuroCoffee in hand and it is perfect. Wow. Okay. Wednesday, compressed day. But a quick reminder, uh, Coffee and Coaches Conference call tomorrow, 6 a.m. Thursday. Join us. um, Casual conversation, technical conversation. We we cover a full spectrum of, of topics every time we have a call. We usually have a great group, so so please join us for that. Um, I got a couple questions that came through, through Q&A that are very, very similar um, on, on some level. Um, and it, it's regarding impingements. And so so John had a shoulder impingement and Max had a, a hip impingement. And they were both looking for, for some advice. And so I just thought that this is actually a really interesting topic. Um, if, we can, if we can model this a little bit differently than, than what may have been uh, represented in the past, it might give us a, a couple of clues as to, as to how we want to address these things because there are similarities regardless of where, where you have a, a perce- perception of impingement. Um, the rules are, are kind of the same and so we want to go back and we want to think about our, what, what strategies we have available so we only have two strategies and one plane so remember that two strategies compression expansion one plane transverse it's the only ones we got um, let's leave the other stuff out of it it's just confusing at this point point. and so as we move through uh, through our space on Earth here, and we're dealing with, with the load of gravity. Um, there, are, there are forces that we have to apply upward against gravity to hold our positions, to move heavy things and such. And so under those circumstances, what we have to do is we have to capture the propulsive strategy and at some point in time the the forces ramp up so we would call that max propulsion under certain circumstances and, and the forces are variable depending on what we're doing. If we're just walking there there's the the, the max propulsion is going to be a you know a certain level of force. If we're running it's a little bit different. If we're lifting heavy things it's going to be a little bit different. But the point being is is that we have to be able to capture a, a position that allows us to apply this upward force. That's going to be done um, with sufficient relative internal rotation, an exhalation strategy, and compression, and so that always goes along with that with that upward force. So when we're dealing with impingement issues, what we have have um, done is we've created a resultant that does not allow us to distribute this this force. Uh, sufficiently throughout our entire system and so now we're going to use a focal strategy, a focal compressive strategy to apply this this maximum propulsion depending on, on what activity that, that we're going to do. And so it, we're, it's a quest, if you will, um, to sort of acquire sufficient internal rotation and compression to, to help uh, maintain our position or do whatever activity um, that we're doing. So let me give you a couple of examples um, as, to, as to what I'm talking about. So let's just say that you're, um, you're my narrow uh, ISA archetype, and so you're going to be biased towards this, this early propulsive foot, let me turn around this way so we can go this way. So we have this early propulsive foot which is biased towards external rotation. But for me to walk normally, I have to acquire an an internal rotation as I move through this this propulsive um, uh, excursion uh, of the foot. But what what if I'm biased towards ER? Then I don't have this IR available to me. So what I'm going to try to do is I'm going to try to acquire it somewhere else. So now what I may end up doing is I may have to anteriorly orient my pelvis over the femur to acquire a representation of this max propulsion. So this is how I'm going to try to acquire um, the, the so-called intro orientation, but it's not really inter orientation, it's just this, this anterior orientation and a compressive strategy. So now I have pain that might, might arise in, in the front of my hip. I might use my knee as as the substitution and and magnify the amount of internal rotation at the knee joint and therefore I get medial knee pain. I might be orienting my pelvis to such a degree that, that now I get focal load. Um, in the the facet joints of of the lumbar spine. So so once again, all we're trying to do is acquire a position that allows us to to apply sufficient force to hold and 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 hold our positions and allow us to move through space. So if we understand that that this is the the issue, then what is the solution? So this is why we talk about the importance of. Of normalizing breathing because what normalizing breathing represents is our ability to move through full excursions of internal and external rotation which is representative of the relative motions of, of every segment of our body and if we have that relative motion available to us or we have sufficient adaptability available to us then we distribute the forces rather than creating these focal loads of, of impingement so it'd be really nice If we had like this hip impingement cookbook, or we had a low back impingement cookbook, or we had a suboccipital impingement cookbook, but really it just goes back to understanding what these representations are. So this is why we're, we're looking to measure internal and external rotations. This is why we're looking to identify where the compressive strategies are. They're always exhalation strategies. We identify where these compression strategies are that are limiting our ability to recapture the relative motion. So the solution at the bottom line is we have to normalize breathing to whatever degree that we need to to acquire sufficient adaptability in the system to distribute forces rather than creating these focal loads. So once again, this is going to be an N equals one situation, and in many cases, there are similarities, certainly. Um, between my my wide and my narrow archetypes, Um, but but in general, the rules are the same. We're trying to acquire a a substitution for the lack of relative motion, typically trying to utilize an internal rotation strategy, exhalation-based strategy and compressive-based strategy um, that is creating the focal load. So um, I hope that's a little bit helpful from a perspective standpoint. Um, we can talk about some specifics at some point down the line, I would imagine, but there's a lot of stuff that's already up on YouTube and, and, and on Instagram that we've covered about uh, reacquiring internal rotations of the shoulder, in, uh, internal rotation uh, of the hips specifically. We're looking at, at knee issues. So I had a whole sequence of videos on, on the, the different variations of knee pain. So take a look at those um, if you need some strategy. And then if you have any specific questions, send them to askbillhartman at gmail.com, askbillhartman at gmail.com. Have a terrific Wednesday. I'll see you guys on, on the Coffee and Coaches call in the morning. Have a great day. Happy Thursday. I have Neuro Coffee in hand, and it is perfect as usual. This is the Coffee and Coaches Conference call. Welcome, everyone. Happy Thursday. I
1: had a, I had a friend text me just the other day, kind of asking a question about uh, something she's seen with one of her clients, um, and I, I was kind of intrigued by it as well. Uh, she's talking about an individual that she has that is extremely wide ISA and appears to be in stuck in posterior tilt, or it's like this is her this is her uh, uh, what she's seeing so, so far. She's unsure if she's Actually, seeing posterior tilt or just so compressed on the backside that the hips are being push, pushed forward and still stuck in like neutral or even anterior tilt, but getting motion other places. So right. she's trying to figure out where, she, how to assess to get back to figure out where, where he really is, I guess. Um,
0: well, I mean, step one is kind of figure out where you are, right? Right. Um, and and uh well i should just make austin talk about this when we talked about this uh yesterday because he had the same scenario i believe am i correct yes sir yeah so um in most cases uh, and it'll be very difficult for a wide for somebody who is legitimately a a wide impersonal angle so that the very horizontal helical angles it's very difficult to create what what you would consider a um, any kind of posterior orientation of the of the pelvis, it just it's it would the, the amount of bending that would be required would be very very difficult. But a lot of times you'll see these white people and they will just be flat as a pancake across the backside, especially in the pelvis, right? And and so it's not it's not the sweat the sway that you would you would typically see <clears throat> with the uh, with the narrows because um, the the orientation of the sacrum doesn't allow it, right? So, so I would have a nutated sacrum. And, and so to have what would look like the traditional sway back where, you know, you have the, the pelvis is, mm-hmm. is, is uh, swayed underneath and, and they're, almost, they're almost standing in hip extension, okay. um, you, you have to have a, a counter-nutated sacrum to, to acquire that, that kind of appearance. And so in most cases they're pushed, like what, what I describe is they're just pushed straight through between the two femurs. And so it's, it becomes this really aggressive kind of an external rotation. So, because um, <clears throat> if I'm, hang on, go get my pubis in the right position. There we go. So if I'm starting wide like that, and then I compress that, and this is, this is, you see how the sacrum moves as a unit here, Matt? Yeah. Under, under these hard compressive circumstances with the wide, it does not um, orient as such. It literally just bends. Okay, so, so from, from here down, the sacrum bends underneath. And, and I have MRIs and functional MRIs that actually show this. Um, it, and it's pretty hardcore. Like you can get like a 90 degree angle, you know, bent through the sacrum um so again there's a lot of compression here and so where where we would have a narrow that would be counter-nutated and they look like they kind of just sway under like so these wide people kind of push straight through like that right okay and so um they it, it's like how does a Y person get so externally rotated? And this is how they just get so compressed posteriorly, they get pushed forward. And then um, what happens is you get this, this ER orientation all the way down to the ground. And so these are the people that, they're they're on the outside edge of their foot. They're, they'll have an inverted um, calcaneus, they'll have an inverted look to their calcaneus. They may be bowed, you know, and so, um, all you gotta do is look at a at a, a really, really good power lifter with a really, really strong sumo deadlift, and you'll see kind of the same orientation.
1: Yeah, she said she mentioned that he was he was pretty duck footed, like like feet yeah. so thrown out, and then like so like I like I I asked her that and then I would say, Hey, like what does this toe touch look like to kind of make sure that like where if he's actually posterior tilted or if he's like in the position that you were saying and I didn't right. get back from her, but
0: right and and so so because of all the the concentric activity that you've got on the on the back side it's like these are the people that that, that they won't even approach 90 degrees of hip flexion right. they will be very very limited you know you'll 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 try to move them through like a traditional measurement of hip flexion and somewhere around 60 70 degrees the knee's going to deviate laterally right. um because they there's so much compression on the back side of the pelvis. And they'll be the same, they'll be the same orientation in the thorax. Sideline is very useful because somebody that's this compressed, I mean, so they they go from, you know, that shape to that shape. And so you just, you need, you need some form of lateral compression and there's no muscles that that do that. Um, And and so that's a nice easy way to to initiate some of the the AP. You just use gravity to your advantage
1: to help you spread out front to back. So as you compress that backside and synovial fluid starts to fill the the front portion of the joint capsule, would, as that gradient gets harder and harder, or uh, bigger and bigger, does it get harder and harder to then pull back all the synovial fluid?
0: okay so this actually this is a really good question the 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 thing you want to try to recognize here though is that um if i have this posterior lower compression i already have a scenario where i've got the anterior compression um already in play and so now what happens so think about um um pushing the the femur straight into the acetabulum and getting this uniform um of synovial fluid around the joint. And what that means is it becomes very, very stable. Right? So I'm driving it straight into the acetabulum. So it's not a matter of shifting synovial fluid anterior or posterior. It's it's all the way around the joint. Um, and and so under those circumstances, it doesn't move. Like right. so I have ER or IR,
1: right? Because
0: right. if I had a gradient, I would have I would have motion in one direction or the other, right? There is no gradient anymore. That's what happens under these circumstances. They get so compressed. And and the acetabulum, because of the compressive strategy that's anterior and posterior, the acetabulum starts to face a little bit more sideways. And literally you just drive the you drive the femur. Drive it straight into the hip socket. Right. So I don't, I don't have any of this. I just have straight in, like I'm just squeezing it into the right. socket.
1: Right. you're saying usually they that person that's super posteriorly compressed is also compressed anteriorly yes, um, what is the reason for that i'm thinking like if you're pushing somebody so far anteriorly you kind of need an, a new muscular strategy to be able to like keep the femur from going so far anteriorly is that where the yeah the, so it's like almost like a co-contraction type strategy yeah
0: okay so if you want to call that co-contraction i'm totally cool with that because you got you got stuff going on anteriorly and posteriorly from you're more likely to get the, the the posterior compression to be towards the base of the sacrum which pushes you forward and so so i don't fall on my face i got to push back with the front side and then my last strategy is to bend the sacrum down and underneath to kind of squeeze everything together and now i don't go forward or back i'm just stuck in the middle and so um you you got your waddlers your people that that waddle when they walk you know it's like those those people are are and they look wide too i mean they 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 got the wide pelvises they'll have the wide thorax etc etc um and and so the reason that they waddle is because they no longer have any turn good morning happy friday i have neuro coffee in hand and it is. Perfect. Okay. So if you're in the United States, we're moving into a long weekend. Um, we got Labor Day coming up, so you get that little extra day uh, off for those of you that uh, observe that. So that's kind of an exciting thing. Not sure what I'm going to do next week. We'll figure something out. Maybe we'll do like a, like a best of, a top 10 show. Who knows? We'll figure something out. But I do have a great Q&A question to, to wrap up the week. Um, and it comes from Mike. And Mike asks, when do you choose a heels elevated split squat versus a solely front footed elevated split squat? Um, So he's talking about the difference between like just a heel elevated and and just putting your foot up on a box. Um, My assumption would be that it's based on the desired foot position for instance. In heels elevated variation, you're biasing the foot towards plantar flexion and early propulsion. So that would be good for someone who needs posterior weight shift but trends towards a late propulsive foot. Uh, The standard foot elevation would be for someone who has more balanced foot position but needs posterior expansion and weight shift. Am I anywhere close to being on the right track?" Mike, you are on the right track. So let's go through this a little bit. But the first thing I want you to recognize is this is a great question because one of the things that that I I preach a little bit to, to my mentees is that there's more than one way to do something. And so we can take this same exercise. So we're going to take a front foot, uh, or we're going to take a a split squat, and we're going to manipulate the front foot to allow us to achieve different goals. But the thing that I want you to recognize, a couple things about the split squat first and foremost. We're we're going to focus on the front foot. And so what we're doing with the, the split squat is we're going to be able to take this foot and this tibia all the way through the propulsive phase, but because people are biased um, at one end of, of the propulsive spectrum, so I might have somebody that, that's, that's early uh, biased or I might have somebody that's late biased, I can manipulate the split squat to recapture the opposing strategy or the, the strategy that they may be in deficit of. The nice thing about a split squat is that the front foot is never fully loaded. And so if we look at research, um, if you if you have both feet on the ground uh, in, a, in a typical split squat, you're going to be biased just slightly forward. So the weight distribution, I think, at maximum is 55 forward and, and 45 to the rear. If we play with, with elevations, uh, I think the rear foot elevated the split squat at a bench height. I think you can max the, the front foot load out at about 85%. But keep in mind that as we move through the excursion of the split squat, the amount of load on the front foot actually fluctuates. Quite a bit, but the general premise is I can take some load off of this front foot. This gives me an opportunity to introduce load through the foot gradually and allow me to uh, accomplish the task at hand, such as trying to move this tibia through the full excursion, trying to get this foot to go through this full excursion uh, of, of the propulsive phase. So if I elevate the front foot, so this is a normal elevation of the front foot, so the front foot's up on a box. Um, I'm going to distribute the load even further posterior. So if I I use my 55-45 as a ground-based example, I put that front foot up on the box, I'm immediately moving my center of gravity backwards, and so I'm deloading that even farther. So it's going to be less than the the, uh, research-based 55%. If I jack up my, my back foot, like I said, we're going to get a much stronger anterior load. Um, But this is going to allow us to have some measure of a progression uh, as we utilize this this front foot bias and slowly increase the load, gradually introduce more stress to the system and still maintain our goals. Now, because we're elevating the heel or we're elevating the entire foot, we're going to bias the foot towards an early propulsive phase in, in both cases. The difference is going to be, again, how much load we're going to put on this this front foot and then how much tibial excursion that we're going to have. So if I elevate the heel, I am going to bias them towards this early propulsive strategy. So they're never going to hit the the end position of, of propulsion because of the the heel elevated bias. This allows me to maintain a more posteriorly expanded orientation of the pelvis and of the thorax because I'm biasing my foot towards a a concentric yielding strategy. So these are for the people that that have difficulty with posterior expansion. So um, another exercise that you may have chosen for this person would be like a heels elevated goblet squat. So these are people that cannot yield. They cannot delay propulsive strategy on one side. So they're constantly pushing one side forward. We want to make sure that we bias that side backwards. So we're going to use a heels elevated version to emphasize that, that yielding strategy and hold them back towards this early propulsive strategy. If I want to improve their excursion to move through... So I, I might have somebody that's, that's biased towards this early propulsive strategy. I want to get them to the end of this propulsive strategy. Now what I'm going to do is I'm just going to put their front foot up on a box. I start in early. I've deloaded the foot and then I'm allowing that tibia to translate all the way through. And then it's just a matter of, of progression. Like I said, I can bring the foot back down to the ground. That immediately increases the load and I continue to train this, this tibial excursion or I continue to try to hold them back. Um, with, the, with the heels elevated version. So like you, like I said, you can see that there's multiple ways to do this. Um, it's just a matter of understanding the, the principles behind it. Take the same exercise, keep tweaking it. There are other ways that we can manipulate this split squat farther up when we talk about the pelvis, but that's for a later video. You guys have a great long weekend if, if that's what you got coming up. Otherwise, have a great normal weekend, and I'll figure out something for next week, and I'll see you later.